Hello, and welcome back to Unsighted, the internet's least reliable English lit podcast. I'm Chantel. And I'm Amy. And we're going to be talking about my favorite poet, so I'm super duper excited. How are you doing today, Amy? I was expecting you to say the words, I'm super jazzed about it, and then I was going to make jazz hands, but then you did it, and I was disappointed, and it threw me off, so... Oh man. Everyone missed the really audible joke of jazz hands. I don't do this for the audience. I do this for myself. <laughs> no, so we're going to be reviewing slash talking about your homegirl, Christina Rossetti. Okay, so this is one of the episodes that we've been talking about recording since we started this podcast because I love her so much. I just, I think she's so cool as a person. Wait, is she racist? Stop. No. Why do you do this? Because you love me? I guess. Oh, she opposed slavery in the American South, cruelty to animals, and the exploitation of girls in underage prostitution. Man, your homegirl Christina Rossetti is a champ. Boom. Boom. Yeah, I have no complaints about her. Everything about her is good. Let's rock and roll. Okay. Okay, so I am not expecting people to have read Christina Rossetti. She's a little niche. Um, If you have, congratulations, because you had a good time, obviously. But if you haven't, we are going to read the poem on air. It's in the public domain for everybody, I think. Yeah. So let's do this. The poem we're looking at is An Apple Gathering. We read this poem together in our second year English class. It was like one of those overview classes. Survey courses is what they're called. Yeah, that. I'm very academic. Yeah. <laughs> Nobody saw that visual joke where I pointed my nose up like a snob. We're all about the visual jokes on our audio podcast. I'm bad at this format. Okay. So you're gonna you're gonna read this in your beautiful, beautiful voice. All right. So an apple gathering by Christina Rossetti. I plucked pink blossoms <laughs> no. from my <laughs> Not in that accent, Chantel. Don't make me laugh. This is a very serious poem and no no humor involved. I plucked pink blossoms from mine apple tree and wore them all that evening in my hair. Then in due season, when I went to see, I found no apples there. With dangling basket all along the grass, as I had come, I went the selfsame track. My neighbors mocked me while they saw me pass, so empty-handed back. Lillian and Lilius smiled and trudging by. Their heaped-up basket teased me like a jeer. Sweet-voiced they sang beneath the sunset sky. Their mother's home was near. Plum Gertrude passed me with her basket full. A stronger hand than hers helped it along. A voice talked with her through the shadows cool, more sweet to me than song. Ah, Willie, Willie, was my love less worth than apples with their green leaves piled above? I counted rosiest apples on the earth of far less worth than love. So once it was with me you stooped to talk, laughing and listening in this very lane, to think that by this way we used to walk, we shall not walk again. I let me neighbors pass me, ones and twos, and groups. The latest said the night grew chill, and hastened, but I loitered, while the dews fell fast, I loitered still. This poem is in the public domain. Can you believe that some people think this poem is about apples? <laughs> <laughs> so due to the uh, the content of this poem, we ended up like making some raunchy jokes last time. Slightly raunchy humor. Um, I think we'll probably make some more raunchy jokes this time. We'll have to see. Wasn't there like a whole thing in our class while we were talking about that some people who we will not name, well, weren't they talking about how they thought it was just about apples and our like prof had to be like, it's not about apples. 
Is this the poem that I'm remembering? This is the very same. It's not about apples. No. You don't have to look that far into it to understand what she plucked her blossoms too early means. I mean, the first stanza alone gives it all away and then the rest just makes it sad. I know. So clearly she hooked up with Willie and now he's ignoring her. And now he's talking to someone else and she has no virtue left and people are laughing at her. Okay, so context of this poem. It's another Victorian work. We are loving our Victorian works lately. We really need to branch. Mm-hmm, we do. <laughs> but they're so fun. They're so fun to make fun of. We'll, we'll just say this is our Victorian season. It was written in 1857. So in Victorian society, if women had sex before marriage, they were considered what they called a, quote, fallen woman. So fallen women were sexual transgressors It didn't matter how. It could have been anything. Like, spoiler alert for the first episode of Bridgerton, but when that guy tries to kiss her in the garden and she doesn't want to be kissed, if he had kissed her, she would have had to marry him because she would have been considered a fallen woman. I mean, spoiler for the fifth episode of Bridgerton, when What's-His-Face actually kisses her and then they get caught, that's why they have to get married. Yeah, but then she actually consented to being kissed. Yeah, but it was still outside of wedlock. Consent didn't matter in this time. It absolutely did not. So any activities outside of wedlock would have made her a fallen woman. Yeah. So like women who um, were like, no, don't kiss me. And then some guy kissed them. They were a fallen woman. The same exact way that sex workers were considered fallen women. They were all in the same category None of them were wrong. All of them were shamed. Once they were a fallen woman, they lost respect, status, and they were considered unmarriageable, except by the man that they had the relations with. Yeah, because if, like, you married a fallen woman, it was also, like, bad for you, the man. Yeah. You couldn't save them without also, like, destroying yourself. Unless, of course, she was a widow. You would never be a fallen man, though. Like, you would get shamed if you married a woman who had sexual relationships outside of wedlock. But if you yourself had sexual relationships outside of wedlock, you're fine. Yeah. As a man. Um, So it's garbage. Garbage double standard. Yeah. And then, like, the thing that would happen is that it was assumed they would eventually fall into poverty and or die. And that was just, like, their, their life. Like, they do one thing and then the rest of their life is laid out for them. Because the only way that they can make money is by being married because they can't really work. Yeah. Like women aren't allowed to work except the poorest women in Victorian society. Because Willie's like just walking around. He took her blossoms, but he's just walking around getting Gertrude's apples now. Like what's up with that? That's not fair. Yeah, well, that's the thing. Like you have, so Willie's mean to our sweet narrator and he plucks her blossoms and then he turns around and he's able to like i'm guessing he married gertrude oh yeah that's what him getting her apples means she's reached ripeness yeah like he's allowed to do whatever he wants before he gets married but the women can't do anything and you know if we take willie's former sexcapades into our judgment of him my guess is he just got caught with gertrude hmm that's a good point i don't trust this willie he's a bit of a fuck boy also his name's willie like that's his name willie's a dick willie is a dick should have been called dick <laughs> well oh no you're right i was thinking dick was a um, nickname for william but it's a nickname for richard which also doesn't make any sense no do you know what i thought about i was like Willie, Dick, how do I make Willie into Dick? And then Willie, 
And then I'm going to go, okay, well, Dick is for Robert. Bob is Robert. And then I was like, Billiam. <laughs> I was like, not Billiam. This is a very long leap for Willie already being a synonym. <laughs> so uh, here we are. <laughs> All right. And we're back. Okay. So my homegirl, Christina Rossetti, whom I love so much. Yes. She is not criticizing the fallen woman. No. She's not slut shaming. Nope. Because my homegirl would never do that. Mm -mm. This poem is very sympathetic to our unnamed narrator. She's really sad that like everyone's judging her and we're supposed to feel pathos toward her because she is the victim of Willie's betrayal. Like Willie is the one who loved her and then left her because she didn't have any apples for him anymore. Yeah. So basically riffing off of something our prof said on this she's basically like the cool aunt that's just like warning girls what's out there like okay ladies listen up this is what's going on out there like this is the unfortunate truth for gals like us gals like us gotta stick together it shouldn't be this way but it is and you gotta be careful because people will judge you and people are not nice and the world isn't fair but like then's the facts kids you know yeah and if this wasn't the time period it was written in she probably would have just moved to new york and lived her best life but that's not where we're doing life right now yeah no she would not have written the poem like this if she were writing it now if she were writing it now it would be like okay gals if you're gonna share your apples you make sure you share your apples with someone you really like and trust him who's gonna like share their apples back with you so you can both enjoy some apples but also like you know how Nicki Minaj was like yeah I fuck Drake you might have not have been Nicki Minaj but you get what I was saying um no <laughs> you don't you don't know that song no I don't I'm not hip in her song only featuring Drake Lil Wayne and Chris Brown Nicki Minaj says yo I never fucked Wayne I never fucked Drake all my life man fuck's sake Wow, Amy. Beautiful poetry reading. So it would be like a rap song, I think, if it was written right now, where she'd be like, yeah, I fucked Willie, but then he went and fucked the rest of the world. So like, who's the real baddie here, you know, type of thing. Um, I'm not hip, guys. However, like, I feel like the tone here is a little accusatory. Our sweet narrator here is kind of envious of the other girls. Oh, yeah, for sure. She, like, she's even mean to Gertrude. She calls her plump. I mean, that's not necessarily a bad thing at this time. It wasn't like it is now where it's a trait that people shame. It's a trait that people, like, aspire to, I think. But then she calls her weak because a stronger hand than her is helping her along. Um, like, she's not even strong enough to carry her own basket, you know? Okay, that's an interesting point because that's not how I read it. I was just reading it, like... Oh, men have strong hands. Mm. Willie's got strong hands. Strong man hands over here. Yeah, but then we have like Lillian and Lilius. Their basket teased me like a jeer, you know? Like their joy, you know, at being perfect women is teasing me because I was ruined because I don't have any goddamn apples. <laughs> Let, are we Are we going to get into the apple metaphor here? I don't know, are we? You know, the apple of Eden? Oh, Okay, go on. Expand on this. I'm interested. Okay, so you know how, like, Eve ate the apple? Yeah. And it's, like, the original Sin TM? Yeah. Um, I don't necessarily think that apples here are necessarily, like, just a fruit to be a fruit. Like, she could have used pears, but she specifically used apples. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we're, we're picking our apples and whatever. Like, you know, we're grabbing these sins, but, like, if we're doing them with a man who's going to marry us, it's fine. 
However, like she went and she plucked the blossoms like to go to a party before they were even able to be apples. Like she didn't even get to the point where she would be able to sit and eat the apple, which is kind of funky fresh, I think. I think there's something there. <laughs> you think there's something there? I think there could be. I mean, yeah, like apples are very biblical allegory heavy. Yeah. So I, I can see why a sin of the flesh that she did would be tied to the apples, but she didn't have the apples. I don't know. I think there's something there. Yeah, like, all these women have the potential to sin, but they're doing it in, like, proper way. And then she took away her potential to sin, but she still ended up being looked at like she had sinned. I mean, she did hook up with him. Well, yeah, 100%. But, like, I mean, the people who were mean, you know, they were mean to her because she hooked up with him outside of wedlock, you know? Yeah. And, like, they're allowed to have sex when they're married. Like, that's mm-hmm. fine. 100%. You're supposed to. Not for pleasure or anything. Let's not... Only for babies. Only for babies. Lest you expel your egg. <laughs> also, like, it was expected for men to have extramarital affairs. It was considered, like, a kindness because proper women weren't supposed to want that. So the men would be like, oh, we'll just try to have a baby. And then once we have all the babies we want, I'll just go to the brothel and then I'll take care of my earthly needs there. And you can continue to like do our laundry or something, you know, like I don't want to put that on you. Yeah. That was considered a nice thing for the men to do in the marriage. Yeah. But it's also like, I I was thinking about this, um, but I feel like here our homegirl Christina Rossetti through this narrator is kind of saying like, you know, you don't even need to eat the apple to be perceived as sinful. You don't even need to get to the apple for it to happen. Women are just automatically going to be judged on their actions, whether they eat the apple or not. Yeah, because like she just went to a party. Yeah. She was probably like dancing with guys. People were looking at her like she might have done something and she didn't even necessarily do anything. Yeah, because that's like at the bottom when she's talking about Willie, she says about how like um, they used to talk and laugh in this lane and to think that we used to walk this way, you know, like they have all these like memories, but none of them are specifically like super carnal. Well, no, they wouldn't be because it's allegorical. But yeah, I see what you're saying. Like they might have not like hooked up, hooked up, but like, you know, just like chatted too close and like an enclosed space that people were like, ooh, you hooked up, but like they didn't necessarily. That's true because... Yeah, even if people thought that you might have done anything, like even kissed, like you yeah. couldn't even kiss, you couldn't even hold hands. Yeah. Like you couldn't even be in the same room without a chaperone because that might have happened and then you would be compromised and then you would be a fallen woman and unmarriageable. So yeah, I'm on board with this reading. Yeah, I don't know if it means anything per se, but I don't think that like, you know, it's clearly not about apples, but I don't think we should forget about the apples, you know? Yeah, no, I get that. Are there any other poems that we want to talk about? So she does have one more really good poem that I've read some of, but I haven't finished it yet. And I feel like it's such a long poem that we would have to have like a separate episode about it called The Goblin Market. But it seems kind of like an epic. I don't know enough about it to say whether it is, but it seems like it might be. And I'm excited to read it. It's on my list of things to read. She wrote a a Christmas carol. Like the Dickens work? I mean, in theory, I guess. I need to know more about this because did Dickens steal it? Give me a second. (laughs) I'm very intrigued. They were around the same time, so... Okay, so Dickens came out in 1843, and hers came out in 1872. So 
after. So it was like a reboot. Yeah, it was like a reboot. Do you want me to read it? Okay. In the bleak midwinter, frosty wind made moan. Earth stood hard as iron, water like a stone. Snow had fallen, snow on snow, snow on snow, in the bleak and midwinter long ago. Our God, heaven cannot hold him, nor earth sustain. Heaven and earth shall flee away when he comes to reign. In the bleak midwinter, a stable place sufficed. The Lord Almighty Jesus Christ. Enough for him whom cherubim worship night and day, a breast full of milk, a manger full of hay. Enough for him whose angels fall down before the ox and ass and camel, which adore. Angels and archangels may have gathered there, cherubim and seraphim thronged the air, but only his mother in her maiden bliss worshipped the beloved with a kiss. What can I give him, poor as I am? If I were a shepherd, I would bring him a lamb. If I were a wise man, I would do my part. Yet what can I give him? give my heart. Aw, that's nice. So not a reboot of The Christmas Carol. Not at all. It kind of reminds me of Little Drummer Boy. Yeah, I get that. Because Little Drummer Boy has no frankincense and myrrh and the gold from the wise men. So he just does his little drumming set. Then that's why Jesus joins a rock band later in life. (laughs) Yes. Do you want to hear When I Am Dead, My Dearest? Which is a song. Okay. When I Am Dead, My Dearest, sing no sad song for me. Plant thou no roses at my head, nor shady cypress tree. Be the green grass above me with showers and dewdrops wet. And if thou wilt, remember, and if thou wilt, forget. I shall not see shadows, I shall not feel the rain. I shall not hear the nightingale sing on as if in pain. And dreaming through the twilight, that thought not rise nor set. Haply I may remember, and haply I may forget. Snap it out, that was beautiful. Yeah. 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 See? Everything she does slaps. Everything? She's never done anything that didn't slap. Um, I saw another one. Okay. So this is for all my home people who went to school (laughs) with me. Um, and anybody else who had to, uh, read through W.O. Mitchell's, uh, Who Has Seen the Wind. Because Christina Rossetti also wrote a poem about it. And, uh, I'll go into that in a second. Who Has Seen the Wind? Neither I nor you, but when the leaves hang trembling, the wind is passing through. Who has seen the wind? Neither you nor I, but when the trees bow down their heads, the wind is passing by. Now, I have a theory about this, okay? Okay, go. Hit me with your theory. And in this theory, I need to make sure... Um, what denomination was she in? Like of religion? Yeah. Anglo-Catholic movement that developed in the Church of England. Yeah, she actually, um, I have a fact about this. Please. She was quite devout. She actually split up all three of her engagements. Or she split up her first engagement and she said no to two more suitors who proposed to her, specifically because she didn't agree with them on religion. Like, she was a very devout Anglican. They weren't calling it Anglican at the time, I don't think, but she was a very devout Anglican. And her first fiancé had been an Anglican, but then he converted to Catholicism, and she was like, no, we can't get married because those religions are so different, you know? And then there were two more guys who weren't Anglican, and she was like, no, I need to marry an Anglican. Right, so who has seen The Wind? The novel by W. Mitchell. The wind here is God. Okay. He stole the title from her. Wait, what? (laughs) Yeah. The first line of the Wikipedia page for the novel is, novel written by Canadian author W.O. Mitchell, who took the title from a famous poem by Christina Rossetti. 
Um, so he doesn't steal the title. It's like, um, there's a book called The Eternal Footman, which is a line from T.S. Eliot. So it's like, it's not, I wouldn't say it's stealing. It's stealing in the sense that wind, even in the poem, can be interpreted as God. Because, like, you can't see God, you know, but it's always there kind of thing. Which is very prominent in, like, non-Catholic branches of Christianity. So, like, the Church of England and Protestantism. Yeah. So all of this is just... It's like a nice little gift for all the people who went to school with me (laughs) and we can suffer together. (laughs) But I think it's really interesting. And like, I think that the fact that it was like the novel is taken from the poem is not like an accident. Okay, no, I don't think it's an accident either. No, I think it's very purposeful. And I think that uh, your homegirl, Christina Rossetti, being so religious, probably wrote this with like religious undertone, overtone. And a lot of her poems are religious, actually, when you think about it. Yeah, no, that's true. She would have been a great nun. Yes, she had very like traditional Christian values in the sense that she was more Christ-like. Yeah, you know, we don't judge people. We bring what we can to the table, you know, that kind of stuff. Yeah, give us your poor, your downtrodden, but like less condescending than that. Yeah. I would like to give some more background on Christina Rossetti, my favorite poet. Love her so much, you know? Yeah. Okay, so our girl Christina started publishing poetry when she was 18 years old. She had three siblings a sister named Maria, and two brothers named William Michael and Dante Gabriel. Her family fell into a little bit of hard times because her father passed away, I think. So they were financially in trouble. Maria had to get a job as a live-in governess, which is basically like a nanny slash teacher. And then she became a writer. William was a writer, and he was also an editor at the literary magazine where Christina published in her early career. So I picture him editing her stuff personally, like we used to edit each other's stuff, (laughs) like really harsh, and then handing it back like, it sucks, I hate it, do it again. Okay, so you did to me, (laughs) it's not what I did to you. No, it was reciprocal, come on. Even when I was editing your French essays, I was still like, oh, you could try this, or I would like change the word really delicately, you know, I was using my teacher voice, but my written teacher voice, and then you were... (laughs) editing my sentences you would get up from my bed come to my desk and be like read the sentence (laughs) and then I would cry because I couldn't get through it I just I found some of the best sentences in your early drafts and it delighted me and I wanted you to share in that delight I was doing it as a favor to you personally (laughs) the tears they cry the tears we cry (laughs) Dante her third sibling Yeah. Dante was a writer and a painter, and he was one of the most prolific writers and painters of his time. He founded a society of artists called the Pre-Raphaelite Brotherhood with her ex-fiancé. Are you kidding me? Her brother and her ex-fiancé founded a literary and painting movement? Get out of my face. I am not for Dante. Let me tell you why he sucks. The pre-Raphaelite Brotherhood was basically the grown-up version of a wooden treehouse with a no girls allowed sign on it. (laughs) She was involved in it. She was always around. She was always writing similar-ish stuff, but much better. And he was still like, no, it's a brotherhood. You can't come in. And But she was like way better than all of them. Like she was way much better. Okay. Their art was boring. 
They were founded on the ideals of like medieval times, but like better than medieval times because have you seen a picture of a medieval cat or a medieval baby? (laughs) So they were in like kind of the style of the Renaissance with the principles of medieval art where like all the portraits were based on actual people. They had really detailed backgrounds, but like not in a creative way, not in an interesting way, in a way that like everyone looks dead inside, like all of their expressions were the same. I invite you to look up the painting, The Girlhood of Mary Virgin. This is a Dante Gabriel Rossetti original, which is not high praise. Christina Rossetti sat for the portrait. In it, no one has an expression. Literally, all the expressions are just like, oh, we fell asleep standing up. Those are the expressions. Are you looking at the painting? Is that kid a harp? I don't know. I'm so confused. I don't know. And I'm upset by it. Christina wrote a poem about the Pre-Raphaelite Brotherhood called In the Artist's Studio. In this poem, she talks about how they use the same models in all their paintings. And it's boring AF, okay? She has the line, one face looks out from all his canvases. And then later, every canvas means the same one meaning, neither more or less because they're all the same because they're not creative and they understand the principles of art presumably i guess but like they can't replicate them without a model and it's always the same freaking models either there's someone in their family or someone they're hooking up with at the time and it's like ugh, do something original you know like it doesn't matter if they're painting the virgin mary or they're painting like ophelia from hamlet like they all look exactly the same no one is doing anything interesting it's like they learn how to paint one face which happened to be his sister's face and then went that is good i know how to do this now and then he just like used photoshop's like snipping tool and was like snip change contrast change color change hue and blur edges got it yeah it was like he made one painting and then traced over the same painting forever i mean i guess he had a brand he definitely did he was definitely a recognizable brand the literary critic Dinah Rowe argues that um, In the Artist Studio is about the male artist's self-worship. All of what you're telling me about Dante sounds like he's just, he loves like jerking himself off essentially in his art. <laughs> yeah, that's literally like the Pre-Raphael Blight Brotherhood was just a circle jerk. Yeah, it's like, oh, look at how great we are. And it's like, they're paint by numbers. Yeah, they were. And the number is your sister's face. (laughs) Um, She says that like some people read it as he's objectifying the women in the paintings and he shouldn't be objectifying the same woman over and over again and it's annoying. But it's like, he's very like, this painting that I can do, this one painting, so good. I'm going to do it 37 times. And Christina says the woman in the painting appears not as she is, but as she fills his dream. So basically it's like, he's got a manic pixie dream girl. Yeah, his sister. Yeah, he's the guy from 500 Days of Summer. You know the guy who coined the term Manic Pixie Dream Girl regrets it? Oh, really? Why? Because everything in the early to late mid-aughts was like, oh, look, a Manic Pixie Dream Girl, a Manic Pixie Dream Girl. And he was like, probably shouldn't have coined that term. It's being overused. (laughs) (laughs) But that's what she is, though. Like, whether he's using his sister or he's using, like, some other woman or the other painters are using another woman, like, they're... They're just using, like, their version of this woman with no personality, no substance, just a pretty face, no expression, fully blank, 
boring. Manic Pixie Dream Girl. Even then, the Manic Pixie Dream Girl has so many quirks. She's quirky. I guess. She's not even a Manic Pixie Dream Girl. She's just a girl from his dreams. It's kind of like Paper Towns. He projects what he thinks about this girl onto her and it's not correct. And he's like, yeah, she's uh, she's really perfect and, and beautiful. And that's all she is. And then it's like, no, she's got her own personality and flaws. She can write better than you can. Yeah. <laughs> we're, we'll have to do an episode on Paper Towns. Yes. But yeah, except his poems were the same way. Um, they were like, all style, no substance. <laughs> In my Victorian lit class, I unfortunately had to read one of his poems and I had heard about him and I already didn't like him. So I wasn't impressed going in. I was like, I heard Dante Gabriel Rossetti. I was like, wait, is that, is that Christina's brother? And I looked it up and I was like, oh, it is Christina's brother. I hate him. (laughs) So his most famous poem is called The Blessed Damozel. Let me just read you the first stanza of this poem. The Blessed Damozel leaned out from the gold bar of heaven. Her eyes were deeper than the depth of water stilled at Evan. She had three lilies in her hand, and the stars in her hair were seven. If I heard him at a poetry slam, like if he followed Christina Rossetti at a poetry slam, and she had just read something like The Apple Gathering, and then he started this BS, I would literally boo him off the stage. His rhyme scheme is flat. His word choice, boring. His content is just Oh, look, the Seven Sisters constellation. It's there. <laughs> That's literally all it is. Oh, uh, yeah. Like, he has no substance. He's trying to have style. He doesn't even have style. And he has zero substance to go with that no style. Dante Rossetti's zero out of 10. Do you have a rating for me on Christina Rossetti's An Apple Gathering? On a scale of just like the little bud of an apple blossom flower to the ripest, juiciest, most delicious apple you've ever tasted. What would you rate an apple gathering by Christina Rossetti? The free apples I used to get at work during enrollment. I'm guessing those weren't good. No, 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 no. So I used to get these apples at work and we get like bushels and bushels of apples to give out to like students and stuff. Yeah. And I would like grab one, then eat it at my desk, whatever. And then I would go out and like the bushel of apples were still there. So I would grab another and eat it at my desk. And then I would like end of the day and there were still bushels of apples. I would take my shirt, put a bunch of apples and then walk (laughs) to my desk, put them in my lunchbox and leave to go home. Oh my God. Should we say this on the air? Like, is this an illegal office stealing thing? No, like I asked if I could and everybody knew I was doing it. Okay, good. They were donated for the students, but the students weren't eating them and it was like a Friday afternoon. I was like, I'm taking apples home. Yeah, I mean, you wouldn't want the apples to go bad. I wouldn't want the apples to go bad. (laughs) So like, you know, five apples saved from going bad is what I would read this poem. So like you like it? I liked it. So they were really juicy Macintoshes, which are my favorite apple. Uh, Macintoshes are really good apples though. They are also honey crisps. Honey crisps are good. Yeah. Royal Gala are nice. Are, nice are those the ones that look like the teacher apples? Uh, no, you're thinking red delicious. I hate those. This is an apple review podcast now. <laughs> Not to be confounded with apple the company. Apple the fruit podcast. 
Christ. We're rebranding. But yeah, no, I really like the poem. I remember being really angry during class discussions and I did this thing where like I would look at people and be like, ugh, and then I would just check out from this class discussion because I didn't agree with them. Yes. Because I was like, I know what's actually going on. I don't need to hear you trying to rationalize your love of apples. This is not about the capitalism behind apples. Like I'm sure, I'm sure Christina did love apples, but that's not what it's about. Any hoodles. Um, no, I really liked it. I thought it was good. Christina Rossetti is my personal homegirl because we had the same um, thyroid condition. Oh, really? Yeah, she also had Graves' disease. Oh, interesting. Except hers wasn't treated because medicine, um, and she had a heart attack from it. I remember like learning about this when we were reading about her, and I was like, oh, that could have been my fate had modern medicine not been a thing. Oh my god. She died of cancer, which is a completely different thing, but like, yeah. So. Oh my god, she had like a really rough medical life. Yeah. So shout out to her for being a thyroid homie. And then her brother is kind of a dick. Yeah. I would rate Dante dead apple tree twig. That's my rating of him. That's a that's a concept. I mean, they seem to be friends. I guess. I mean, I'm not saying it's good, but like he illustrated a bunch of her poetry stuff. But you know what's fun about the fact that they're all dead? What? We can remove the brotherhood part and just add Ros- like Christina into it because she was a pre-Raphaelite poet. Yeah, like she is classified as that. She can get the designation that she truly deserves. Best pre-Raphaelite poet. Yes. I'm looking at the other associate artists and figures to see if there's anybody else that warrants, you know, proper recognition. And, uh... And you're finding none. Finding none left beef. (laughs) But I think, like, if... Like, people want cool short poems. Like, she has a lot of short poems. She does, yeah. That are easily digestible. Mm -hmm. Good for essays. Yeah. Good for analysis. Great. Support your local non-pre-Raphaelite. Your non-brotherhood pre-Raphaelites. Your non-brotherhood pre-Raphaelites. Your sisterhood of pre-Raphaelites. Yeah. (laughs) Okay, cool. Thank you for listening. Please stick around after our outro music to hear a trailer from one of my new favorite podcasts, Breaking Down Bad Books. Uh, Nathan's going to tell us about how he is doing hilarious analyses of the Twilight Saga, as well as Fifty Shades of Grey. I'm having a really good time listening to it. I hope you do. So keep listening after our music to hear that. We reached two exciting milestones with you guys since our last recording. We got 100 followers on Twitter. Yo! So thank you for that. If you haven't followed us on Twitter, we're constantly putting out fire content and we are at UnsightedPod. Uh, You can send us your pet pics and your peer reviews if we say anything that you disagree with. And if Twitter's not your jam, you can always reach out to us through our email, unsightedpodcast at outlook.com. Yes. Our other milestone we reached was 400 listens. If you like this podcast, we would love if you would recommend us to your friends. A lot of you have already rated us on the iTunes store, so thank you for that. We are currently at an average of five stars, which is the best that you can be. I'm really happy that you're listening and enjoying it and um, letting us know what you think. Or if you if you don't want to let us know what you think, just like being here with us. We'll take your reviews and emojis. Like, if you want to just send us a bunch of emojis of how you felt about this episode, by all means, do it through Twitter. Do it through email. Like, just, like, contact us. We need socialization. (laughs) It's rough out there. But this has been really fun for us. And we're glad that you're having as much fun as we are. Thank you for listening. And as always, we're excited. Unavailable.
Hello and welcome to Breaking Down Bad Books, a podcast analysing trashy bestsellers from a literary perspective. Following my breakdown of Stephanie Meyer's Twilight, I'll be digging deep into the raunchy Twilight fanfic turned erotic romance, Fifty Shades of Grey. Although I'm not sure romance is the best word to use. Join me every Monday and Friday for chapter-by-chapter analysis of the book that Salman Rushdie said made Twilight look like war and peace. You can listen on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts, or visit breakingdownbadbooks.com for all the listen links and contact information. I have a feeling that it's going to get awkward, but let's get through this together. Happy reading!